you're new to our church family, we've been moving through uh, different books, the New Testament, since the year began. We're now in Colossians, and I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, the letter of Paul to the Colossians, please, chapter 2. When we read the Bible, when we read the epistles, we're reading someone's, someone else's mail, quite literally. And sometimes the situations described are close enough to our own day and to our own circumstances that it's really clear what Paul's talking about and what he means. Other times, because the letter writer and the people reading the letter know very well their life circumstances, and we're not told that because all we have is the letter. We don't have the backstory. There are parts of Paul's letters that can be hard to understand. That's not that's neither a criticism nor an opinion. Peter, in one of his letters, said that some of Paul's writings were difficult to understand, and some people twisted them like they do the rest of the Scriptures. This morning, we are in one of those sections in Colossians. It's filled with religious language. It speaks of baptism and circumcisions. It speaks of angels and mystical visions. It speaks of harsh rules of some kind that some people try to put on others as the path to God. So there's a great deal to sort through in the backstory. When I started studying Colossians, I was looking at this passage for weeks, knowing that this would be a big Sunday for, to test me as a Bible teacher. And I pray it doesn't test in any way your patience because it is immensely practical. The specific circumstances in the backstory are different from our own day, but you're going to find out, if I can explain this properly and if I can be clear, you're going to find out that what Paul wrote a church in what we now call Turkey nearly 2,000 years ago, is as timely as the email that just hit your inbox. It's current and it's real. Its message in 21st century America is also deeply unpopular because we live in an age that finds it very difficult to say that anything is absolutely true and that anything is wrong. Have you noticed this? Tim Keller, a pastor in, in New York City, says that the sole remaining value in the, cult, in the modern culture of the West, the only last line that we have left, is self. And what you choose to believe about yourself, that is the only absolute truth. And we're living in an age where if everybody is the embodiment of truth to themselves and those people have conflicting views about how to live, then, then what happens? Well, we're living with what happens. Confusion, anarchy, crime, everything falls apart if there is no certain way of knowing who and what the truth is. That's what Paul's grappling with in Colossians chapter 2. If you look through your Bible in Colossians, you'll, say, you'll see that Paul begins with a prayer of thanks for the Colossians in the first part of the chapter. He says, I always thank God for you. 
Then, beginning in verse 9, he tells them what he has been praying for them. And in verse 15, he starts speaking to them very clearly about who Jesus is. In Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at God Himself. He then goes on to say in the rest of that chapter, uh, in the rest of chapter 1, in the first few verses of chapter 2, this is where we were last week, that that truth that Jesus is God in human history, God on earth, God in flesh, God speaking through an actual human body that suffered and was tempted and died on a cross, that that truth is so real, so historically actual, so objectively, absolutely, no doubt about it, true, and so life-saving to anyone who will trust Jesus that Paul says, I'm willing to suffer so that he can be known. And Paul's not an ivory tower theologian. He's writing from prison. When I was in seminary, I had a wonderful faculty that taught me, but because I was already in pastoral ministry, even way back then, young and dumb as I was, I could tell who had only been in the academy and who had invested his life deeply in the local church. There's just something different about being there. Paul is a man who has been there. He's writing from prison telling them this reality that God acted in history by sending His Son to die on the cross for sin, to reconcile people and all of creation to Himself, is so fundamental, so life-changing, it's actually writing history forward that I'm willing to pay any price necessary so that anyone and everyone can know Jesus. Last week, I told you if that truly is what it means to be a Christian, even though we're not apostles, we should embrace whatever suffering it takes us to follow Jesus and to give Him to other people. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, where we begin reading today, Paul is finally going to start talking very specifically about the things that are troubling the Colossians. That's why the language is loaded with religious terms and symbols. Paul knew what threat he was warning them against. They knew what false teachers and false teachings, including the need to keep a kosher diet, the need to be circumcised, the need to follow the Jewish law, the need probably, in a very practical sense, to go to a local synagogue and be part of that community and keep the law of Moses and the traditions of men like Paul had been, the men of the tradition of the Pharisees. Paul's going to be very practical about them, and the challenge, the leap for you and me is we weren't there. And I've got another challenge because our attention span is painfully short in the 21st century. Have you noticed? I'm talking about myself. I waited for two and a half seconds yesterday for an internet page to load, and it didn't, and I got frustrated and clicked out of it. <laughs> now, think about that for just a second. I accessed a server maybe on the other side of the world through a phone. It's going to space. And two and a half seconds was too long to wait, so I just started another search because I don't have two and a half seconds to… Why am I telling you this? 
because I'm going to read you Paul's argument now. And for 21st century people who have been conditioned to, I texted you five minutes ago, why why haven't you got back to me? They have a word for that feeling. Have you heard it? Textpectations. Okay? You know the culture's changing when we make up words like that. I'm going to read you a long passage of Paul's lifting up Jesus and warning them against his competitors. And please, please, stay with me through this reading because every word counts. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There are the competitors. There are spirits who speak, and there is Jesus Christ. For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, remember they were Gentiles, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, all Jewish observances. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, in other words, harsh religious rituals that punish the body. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's a reference to Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings." These rituals, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. How'd you do? It's clear, right? You all right? The laughter said maybe not so much. Let me tell you why this passage is unpopular. Let me tell you the burden of what Paul is saying here long ago and far away, as timely as the news that broke two seconds ago. 
What Paul is saying is this, following Christ means rejecting his competitors. Man, that's hard. There's a new project on the internet called Jesus Is where people are invited to submit what they believe Jesus to be. I spent a few minutes on it this morning. Jesus is a communist. Jesus is as real as a unicorn. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus is a fake. There's a constant feed of people saying, this is who Jesus is, and here's the key magical words in the 21st century, here's who Jesus is to me. We've come pretty far as a culture in understanding that truth actually exists, but when we're talking about actual historical people, our opinion of who someone is makes little difference. They are who they are. Does that make sense? If you believe that my wife is actually, I don't know, a Senegalese woman who won the 400 meters in the Olympic competition, it's a case of mistaken identity. My wife is someone else. She's the girl born outside of Denver who was raised in Midland, Texas, who had the, thank God, kindness to marry me. That's who, that's who my wife is. Paul has been saying all through Colossians that Jesus is supreme for all kinds of reasons and primarily rooted in this historical fact that He is God in the flesh, that He is one person. So he's not, as Thomas Jefferson said, someone to the American people as real as Greek mythology that he hoped someday would join the Greek gods in our understanding that that was all fake and make-believe. He is who he is, and the burden of this passage is simply that following him, that knowing him means rejecting his competitors. Paul gets very specific about addressing these false teachings, but first he says something really encouraging to us. He says that following Jesus means flourishing. Look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, therefore as you received Christ, the, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In the same way that you started you came to Him by grace. You heard who He was. You heard what He did in the cross. In the same way that you came to Christ, now walk it out. Stay close to Him. Walk in Him. Stick with Him. Continue being His disciple. What does that look like? We are rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. People who know themselves to be in Christ are grateful people. Don't ever think in your own life and the lives of your children that gratitude doesn't matter. Paul says if you understand that you are in Christ the Lord, he's already tipping his hand from that very first verse. The Jesus that he's going to address to them, that he's going to commend to them is not a tribal deity. He is not one of many gods. He is not one of a selection of coaches that can make your life better. He is not someone to be trifled with or tried on for a time until you can find something better. I heard a rock star say, I've found no happiness nowhere else. I'll give Jesus a try. Praise the Lord for at least that much openness, but he is a historical person, and he is not a mere man. He is man, but he is no mere man. He is, verse 6 says, Christ Jesus, the what? 
the Lord, the ruler, the sovereign, the one who's in charge, the uncontested, unrivaled boss. And all of these other terms that Paul's now going to be using, like circumcision and baptism and foods and days and observances and moons and Sabbaths, he is the Lord of all of those things. Some of those things in Judaism are shadows of who he is, and he is the substance of them. Others are false teachings inspired by fallen spirits, by elemental spirits, by demons who lie constantly about Jesus. More on that in a second. But if you're in Him, Paul says, you keep walking with Him in the same way that you came to Him, and you are rooted and built up in Him. And here Paul uses two different word images. People who are in Christ are rooted and flourishing like trees planted by waters, and they are also built up and firm and strong and steady. And I'm reminded of Jesus who spoke of two builders, one who built on sand, one who built on rock. When the storm came, only one construction survived. And and Jesus said, the person who listens to me and does what I say is a wise builder who's building a life in the face of an oncoming storm, and only I can keep you safe through it. Following Christ means rejecting His competitors, but first… We're in Him, we flourish. Look over to verse 19, he speaks of the local church. Paul says in verse 19 that people who have rejected Christ do not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. That's a reference to the congregation of Colossae. If I can be practical about the local church for just a second. One of the signs that someone is falling out of love with Jesus is they start becoming disdainful of the local church. And it sounds like this, love Jesus, can't stand the church. Have you heard that? Let me tell you why that doesn't work, using Paul's own word pictures. Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church, and we together are His body, members of His body placed where He wants us to be. And when we're functioning properly under His direction with His life, we support each other and we experience a growth, he says, that is from who? From God. Are you following with me in verse 19? Paul uses another word picture in Ephesians, and he says that the church is not the body of Christ, but the bride of Christ different word picture to convey a different image of the relationship of the local congregation with its Savior, founder, and foundation. Now, let's put that in human terms. Let's follow Paul's word picture. You imagine someone saying, you know, I really like your face, but I hate your body. Is that going to be a good relationship between the two of you? No, Jesus is the head of the church, and yes, it has flaws. He is in the process of working in it and working through it and making people true disciples in it so that together we can experience the growth that God provides. Is that perfect? Is that a straight line up? Absolutely not. It's messy, but Paul says people who have embraced false religious teachings and who are actually listening to spirits, what they won't do is hold fast to the head. They won't 
hang on to Jesus, and because they're losing trust in Him, the first symptom is they separate themselves from the body of believers. Watch for that. That is the spirit of our age. Eight or nine years ago, I started warning you about a false religious movement within Christianity that thankfully has largely evaporated because it got so far out of biblical bounds that everybody who was mildly interested in it said, oh, okay, we see where this is going. They're now doing things that I would be embarrassed to tell you about on Sunday morning. And it all started with disdain for the local church. To use the bride of Christ word picture. How would your relationship be with a friend if he said, I love you, buddy, but I hate your wife? From here on out, what I'd really like is if we could just hang out, but don't bring your wife around. She bugs me. I think she's selfish, and I think she's lazy, and I think she's bloated and self-involved, and frankly, I can't stand her. If you and I could continue to be best friends, that'd be great, but don't bring her around. Is that going to work? No. So, following Christ means flourishing because we're growing stronger in Him and we're growing stronger with each other as we take our place under His direction, under the head, in the local body. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here starts the warning. What follows here in verse 8, everything that follows is a detailed warning based on that backstory. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, those are angels, and not according to Christ, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is big. Following Jesus means that we flourish, but following human traditions means, Paul says, one thing. It means that you are dragged away. You are taken captive. What does that look like? It looks like all kinds of things. It may look, according to verse 8, like human tradition. Look over in verse 16. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Do not, he says in verse 20, do not submit to regulations, do not handle, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't work. And the reason for that is that wisdom is entirely human. And the guy teaching it may be simply deceiving, or he may be also self-deceived himself, but it will invite you into a maze of spiritual regulations, or it may invite you into mystic visions mediated by angels and having out-of-body experiences, 
But whatever it is, it has nothing to do with Jesus because, Paul says, He's in charge. He rules over all of those things. When Jesus triumphed at His death and resurrection, He put, Paul says in this passage, He put those spirits to open shame. And here He uses something from the Roman Empire that the Colossians would have been very familiar with, wherein a conquering Roman hero came home with his captives and walked into Rome on his way to the emperor, say, we won. Look, these men wanted us dead. These men would take our homes and our wives and destroy our children. Here they are in chains. It's all word pictures. The trouble is long ago, far away. Here's the biblical truth. If we follow human traditions, Paul says in Colossians 2.8, that will result in captivity. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What am I trying to tell you? That may look like man-made rules and mystical visions, but the truth is this, folks. This battle looks intellectual, but it's really spiritual. In the West, in our super secular scientific West, the greatest lie the devil has told us is not to worry about him. He either doesn't exist or he doesn't have anything to do with our lives. It's not true. The most dangerous enemy you could ever have is the one that you don't know exists. When we were in Mexico, we received a threat over the phone, and it put me on my guard. It made me lose sleep. It made me listen for noises. I hated that experience, but it's far better to know that someone's coming for you than to have someone coming for you and have absolutely no idea. We think, and this expresses itself, and I'm just going to leave it to some of you who are very mature in the faith to think through this, we think that this actually boils down to intellectual and physical combat, perhaps in the classroom or maybe in the political arena, and that's how we're going to win. The root of all these things, Paul tells us in this passage, is spiritual. It's doctrines of demons, he says in another place. It's spirits whispering to people all kinds of things, and whether it's mystical and very, very loose and free-flowing and do what you want, and you can have, as Paul says here, your own self-made religion, or you join a human tradition, a human religion that is thousands and thousands of years old, and you submit yourself to its very strict rules so that someday God will accept you. Those are two sides of one lying antichrist coin because they become substitutes and enemies of the one who is God in the flesh. Anything that minimizes Jesus is not from God because Jesus is God. Look at Colossians 2 verse 9. The center of Paul's argument here is simply this, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to know God? Know Jesus Christ. See what He has done. See His words. See His work. Paul says, and I'm done, that the point of his teaching to warn them against this captivity is this simple truth, Christ alone can make people complete. Look in Colossians 2.10, please. 
In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been, what's it saying? You have been filled or complete in him. See, the religious teachers, and this is what lures many people away, is they're told, hey, you met Jesus? That's good. It's a good start. Here's the next level. Do this diet, do these days, do these rules, listen to this teacher. He'll take you to the next level. If you found Jesus, congratulations, but that's, that's basic. No, it's not. It's the whole story. In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. The verses that follow is where we lose contact from our day to Paul's. In Him also you were circumcised, but the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What does Paul mean here? He's telling them using the ancient biblical mandate of circumcision that they already belong because they're in Christ. Paul had told Abraham, God had told Abraham many, many years earlier that the sign of the covenant, the sign of being in God's family was circumcision. So, Judaizers, many, many years later, having ignored Christ and rejected Christ, or maybe taken Him as a good start, would say, okay, good, but you still need to be circumcised. Paul says, no. What Jesus is going to do is He is going to bring you into God's family by giving you a change from the inside. He's going to circumcise you without hands. In other words, it's not going to be a minor surgery on your body. It's going to work from the inside out, as Scripture says elsewhere, giving you instead a new heart, something that mere circumcision can never do. You belong, in other words. Verse 12 says, you have been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, he's talking to Colossians, these new Christians in this ancient pagan city, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do that? He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against it with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, you're not only do you belong to God, you're alive with Christ. Paul changes the image now and moves away from a spiritual, non-physical circumcision to reminding them of their Christian baptism, which pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me be clear, if you're not clear on baptism, if you are merely baptized, the only thing that will happen to you physically is you will get wet. That's it. It's a portrait, it's a reminder, and it's an act of obedience to Jesus that pictures what Jesus did. He died, was buried, and rose again. And Paul says spiritually, when you come to Christ, you died of sin, you're buried with Christ, and you rise with Him, so you're as saved as you ever will be. That's why he said in last week's passage, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Your identity isn't achieved, it's received. That's the failure of man-made religion, whether it's mystical and people are listening to angels, or going to gurus, or adopting age-old religious traditions, it all boils down to this. You must achieve something. 
You must go to the right guru or you must do the right rules and you must do them long enough and hard enough and treat yourself severely enough or be mystical enough so that someday through your effort you are connected. Paul says all of that was purchased for you at the cross when Jesus was treated by his Father as if he were guilty. That's why he says he took the debt that of legal demands that was against us and nailed it to the cross. What's happening there? A condemned man was crucified with a list of the crimes that took him to the cross, nailed on the cross as part of his shame. Paul's using another word picture saying, when you're looking at the cross of Jesus, understand this, no sins of his own took him there. The sins that fastened Jesus to the tree that Jesus was paying for were your sins. And let me tell you, nobody wants that list read out loud publicly. Am I right? If all the evil, wicked things that are true about you in the depths of your heart were read out publicly, would you stick around for the reading? Me neither. How good is the grace of God? How decisive was the work of Jesus in history? Jesus brought me into the family of God, identified me with His death, burial, and resurrection, gave me His life, and all of that happened at the cross of Jesus. There's no one like Him. But all your life as you follow Him, His competitors sometimes will whisper to you and sometimes will shout at you. And it's going to be harder in the United States as we move forward to say that you have found the truth and you are firm in it. An old hippie who came to Christ said years ago in a book I read that when he was coming up in the 60s and was saved in what they called the Jesus movement, he said, you know, it was really cool to look for truth as long as you didn't claim to have found it. As soon as you said, I found it, I found him, it's settled, it's done, I know the truth, I'm going to heaven no longer cool, because Jesus has many competitors. But if you're going to follow Jesus, the burden of this passage is simply this, to follow Jesus, you have to turn your back on His competitors. He's going to lead you where He wants you to be. He's going to guide you through this earth until He takes you, as He said in John 14, to the home that He went ahead to prepare for you. But the competitors will never stop talking to you. They'll take turns. They'll invite you to be mystical at times and very religious and severe on yourself at others. All of those things are competitors to follow Jesus. Join me as a church. Let's follow Jesus by turning our backs on His competition. Let's pray. Let's make this personal. Any competitors tugging at you? Anything making you question Jesus? Maybe get a little tired of his body, the church? Talk to him about it. Reaffirm your loyalty to him. Thank him that he paid for your sins at the cross. And friend, if you're maybe new to church, and I understand I've taken you into some things that were so long ago and so far away, the message may not be clear to you. Here it is in simple English. God saw you lost in sin, far from Him, thrashing around looking for your own way in the world, and not content to see you die like that, He sent His Son to die instead, 
if you will trust Christ today as Savior, if you will say, Jesus, I give up on me and I trust you, save me. I'm sorry for my sins. Save me. He will. And if you're doing that or you have questions about that, I'd love to know that by using that card, letting me know exactly where you are. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. There was a time when that was me. By His grace, not through my own achievement, by His grace, I received a new identity in Christ. He really did save me. He really did forgive my sin. He can do the same for you if you will trust Him. He's your Savior. All your life, Christian, you'll have people inviting you into new paths. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. It's increasingly unpopular, but follow Jesus. Turn your back on anyone who would pull you away from Him. Lord, give grace now. Give humility to those of us, Lord, who have sat under Your Word. Begin with me. Change us. Break us of our pride and self-determination. Help us truly to follow You with humility to give up on our own inventions and understanding and self-seeking and follow you and rest, God, that we are in Christ and remade and saved already. If there's anyone here, and there may be many who are not sure of their relationship with you, if death were to surprise them tomorrow, they're not certain what would happen. They're not certain that they would be safe at home with you. Give them grace right now to turn to you and trust you. And let us know, Lord, so that we may rejoice with them and help them grow, Lord, as you're growing all of us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.